Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, Danny Brody gives us a behind-the-scenes look into how he and his team have raised over half a billion dollars and built some of the most recognizable names in cannabis. Danny's a partner in Rad Capital, the financing firm that backed Organogram, Emblem, Plus Products, The Green Organic Dutchman, and now Hemp Fusion. He and his team have taken an unconventional path in financing these companies. So he lays out how they've led a retail investor for his strategy. They've honed their approach and he's generous in sharing the lessons from doing this, as well as perspectives on investor engagement, broker relationships, and why you should protect your cap table like it's your firstborn. When it comes to financing early stage deals, no MBA or CFA program will give you these kinds of insights. This is definitely an episode to listen to. From those in the finance business to entrepreneurs looking to raise money, Danny lays out some great lessons for us. Enjoy. On the line, I'm with Danny Brody, who's played an instrumental role in financing, I mean, some of the biggest names in cannabis at this point, Organogram, Emblem Plus, the Green Organic Dutchman, and uh, and now Hemp Fusion. So, Danny, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, looking forward to being here. Right on. So, so let's start off. Uh, you've, you've definitely, you and your team with Rad Capital have made a, a mark on the industry of cannabis. For those who haven't heard about Rad Capital and haven't heard about yourself, can you share a little bit about you? Yeah, you bet. So, so Rad Capital is um, sort of our, our, core, our core group's financial arm, uh, our financial company, if you will. It's uh, Rob Anderson, Dave Doherty, and, and Daniel Brody. Um, so, so we basically being the financial backers behind several of the largest um, IPOs on, on on the TSX for for cannabis. So we we're behind. Uh, well, one of our Dave Doherty was one of our guys behind Organogram. Um, I got involved with Dave and Rob for the Emblem Cannabis deal. We raised about seventy five million for them uh, in twenty sixteen and uh, and did an IPO there, uh, which led us to Teagod or the Green Organic Dutchman. So we started that company right after Emblem, um, raised a total of four hundred sixty million uh, for that project to build out the largest organic cannabis facility uh, in the world. Um, and then that led us to Plus Products. We got our feet wet with the U.S. edibles market, um, and now that's leading us to our next transaction or our next company that we're building uh, called Hemp Fusion. But I guess before all that, I mean, uh, myself, I spent eight years in the brokerage industry. I started working for a small firm in Vancouver uh, in 2008, then got hired by Canaccord. Uh, so I spent another five years at Canaccord before meeting Rob Anderson, who, who kind of took me under his wing uh, and, and taught me everything I needed to know and just kind of groomed me for the last sort of, yeah, almost the last eight, nine years. Um, but that whole process started with a company called Rockshield. And we had a, we basically had a small, venture capital company with uh, you know a few million dollars in it 
And part of our approach was to go out and try to find some interesting companies to invest in, um, which led us to building a database. I built a database of about 16,000 private companies, interviewed about 350 of them. Uh, you know, it's all about creating that funnel. So you narrow that database down, you find uh, a bunch of the companies that you like, different sectors, different companies. I uh, narrowed that down from about 350 that we interviewed down to about 10 that we liked. Term sheets out on three, uh, one of them accepted. So at that point, uh, that was a little company called Kind Can, uh, which eventually turned into Emblem Cannabis. But um, that's that's sort of how the whole process kind of started. It all started from the brokerage industry uh, and really, really evolved from there. So as part of that, um, being in the brokerage industry, and I can come back and talk more about this in a second, yeah. but... Um, you really learn a lot about companies, how to finance, uh, what you're looking for in management teams, some of those differentiating factors and things like that. What a ride, man. I mean, it's, um, let's get into, uh, into the world of brokerage and, and public venture capital and how that works in a little bit. But perhaps we can start off with uh, your latest raise because I think everything's been building up to this. But let's talk about Hemp Fusion and what you're doing there. And maybe we, uh, after getting a brief on that, we can get into some of the particulars about the financing you, you did and how you did it. Yeah, you bet. So, with um, actually, maybe I'll just back up a little bit. So, so when we started looking for different companies to invest in, um, what we what we did, like, like I said, we set up that database just to find the right companies. Um, that led us to the Canadian medical market in 2014 and 2015 through Organogram and Emblem. Uh, so we we really identified that that market for the Canadian medical world, but it was interesting, but it was never really big enough. And what really got us excited was the fact that Trudeau in April of 2016 announced that the uh, announced he had plans for the recreational market. So that's when things really started to pique our interest, and we knew that we had to uh, basically take this to a whole new level. And that's where T God came in. Uh, we knew we needed a lot of capital. We knew we needed the, those differentiating factors being organic. And we knew we needed scale to really compete with the canopies and the auroras. So um, th- that that led us there. We we tackled that side of the market. Um, now that led us to the U.S. edibles market being plus products through California, which is going to be the largest market in the States because it's the largest market there is. Um, and that was a really interesting story because they were the 43rd top edibles company when we got started. Uh, fast forward two and a half years, we've now raised 75 million, uh, and they're the number one best-selling edibles brand in California. And they're taking that capital and starting to apply the same methodologies that got them to that leadership position in California and moving all across the states now and then internationally. So the next sort of, and the reason I explain this is because we go from Canadian medical to Canadian rec to California and U.S. edibles. The next leg of that is going to be the U.S. CBD market. And that's exactly where we're focused on now. So we spent the last I guess the last, we actually wanted to do the deal originally in TGOD, but the, the, the problem is the TSX shut us down at the time because hemp was still considered a narcotic. Uh, mm. So until the farm bill passed in 2018, all of that changed. So fast forward a little bit now, we've actually got, um, we're actually one of the first companies dealing in the U.S. hemp-based CBD market that's got pre-approved conditional approval on the TSX to list. So we're excited about that, but the whole I'll bring this back to your question um, of what we're doing now and, and this hemp fusion race. So so we've we've sort of predicted the last market trends. Now we're putting our our, our stake in the ground, saying the U.S. CBD market is going to be the next domino to fall. So we want to be there early. We want to be there with a company that 
as the entire foundation for success, like Camp Fusion, and I'll elaborate on what I mean by that in a second, but um, we just closed $42 million over two financings, uh, and we did the same sort of retail-first methodology that we've used throughout all of our companies um, to bring over 1,500 shareholders into this company right now. So um, it's significantly capitalized. Uh, they've got the, the foundation now to really compete with the Charlotte's Webs and the CV Sciences of the world. Hmm. That was one of the questions that I have down here is, you know, what is the, the thesis or narrative behind this raise or the raise that you've done with Hemp Fusion? And you, you really started to, to explain that. I can see the progression there and I can see how CBD is, is moving in the market, is, is kind of taking over uh, the, all the interest. One of the things there that you mentioned, though, is that, that retail first. So retail investors first. That, that is such a huge thing in our markets and public venture capital. And uh, I don't think enough is spoken to about it. Uh, do you mind diving in there and, and sharing your perspectives on that and what that actually means? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's, um, that's, that's, really, the, the, that's really the basis for, for the way we raise money. And it, uh, it goes so much further than just raising money. And we, we really tested this theory out in the early days with Emblem, we set a goal to have a thousand retail shareholders come into our story with, you know, we kind of had this theory that, well, if, if, if we've got this medical market coming, we've got this recreational market. Sorry, if we had this medical market now and a recreational market coming, what if we raise money through consumers? What if we raise money through advocates of cannabis, people that actually contributed and used the products and wanted to, you know, contribute to, uh, to, to different companies, not just with blank checks, but you know, maybe some of those guys that were writing ten or twenty thousand dollars checks might be interested in using the product once it's for sale. So when we went out to raise money like that, we we just kind of tested that theory in the early days, uh, just to see what would happen. And we ended up having a lineup of people down the street. Uh, we had over three thousand patients when we were ready to launch our products uh, lined up to, to, to you know, have first crack at it. So aligning investors, uh, into a, you know, aligning investors into our company that also had a, had a passion for cannabis worked really well for Emblem. And we kind of took that same theory and gave it, you know, put some steroids onto it, if you will. And what happened with TGOD is we, we did the same thing. So we ended up going public with almost 5,000 private shareholders before we even listed. And I always used to tell people when I, when I was still at God that uh, it's a good thing we grow organic because I've probably killed a small forest with the amount of subscription agreements I've had to do. <laughs> but, at the, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, it worked really well. And again, we had thousands and thousands of patients lined up right when we're ready to start selling our product. And we've been sold out of every single product that we've ever had available within a few hours. So, so uh, I know a, a question is going to be, how did you do that? How did you get the word out there to the retail investor uh, that that fit the terms, whether they be accredited or however that looked? How did you get that word out? Well, I can't give away all of our secret sauce, but what I can do is I can talk about a few of our different initiatives that we've done. So, I mean, we really wanted to, like I said, we marketed to basically everyone. We've done everything from from conferences to uh, I partnered with Aurora to do a, a massive investor summit in Toronto. I did a, a large investor summit as well in, in Hamilton for all local people to come and kind of see what we're doing, see the story. Um, and that was just shared to absolutely everybody. So on top of that, we did roadshows. 
Uh, we've had a lot of press coverage as well, just from the fact that we're one of the only companies out there that actually market to retail investors. And um, I mean, the reason for that is you could get one check for $10 million or, or a thousand checks for $10,000. So it's a lot more work um, to do. But like I said, at the end of the day, you get a, a massive reward from having all of these shareholders as brand advocates, supporters of the company, and users of the product. So at the end of the day, it just came down to everything from events, conferences, uh, roadshows, different media outlets picking up coverage of us, different interviews like this, um, and just being a really inclusive company, not an exclusive company. We wanted to have everybody involved that wanted to be involved. Um, and let me take that a step further quickly. Um, I know I ramble when I get excited, but this is worth no, it. No, man, go so for it. This the, is gold. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things we did was for our $1.65 round, we had just done two previous rounds, one at 50 cents for accredited investors, one at $1.15 for accredited investors. Um, one at $1.65, we knew that we wanted to expand that to more people because, uh, again, inclusive, not exclusive. So what we did is we spent an extra two months and about $250,000 to file what's called an offering memorandum. And what that did is it opened up our financing to non-accredited investors. And there's still different tiers for that. There's still different income thresholds. But at the end of the day, you do not have to be accredited. You just have to have uh, enough income to justify uh, falling under, under these easier kind of qualifications to meet to subscribe to these financings. So that really opened up the door for us. And the floodgates just opened completely. Um, again, we had a lineup of investors down the street. We had over 2,000 uh, offering memorandum investors come into that round. And um, again, it's about making people money. That's our number one goal is to make investors money. So when you do a 50 cent round, uh, um, up to $1.15, up to $1.65, um, and then a three sixty five IPO, investors made anywhere from several hundred percent up to upwards of a thousand, if, if not more, when you start including the warrants. So you Absolutely. start kind of developing a bit of a track record, a bit of a following for, for people that you're able to make money for. And it all comes together to create a, you know, oversubscribed offering um, that's got mass retail distribution. So it all kind of comes together in one, um, and it's it's all it's all about the database. It's all about creating, uh, about creating a following, adding to that database continually through different marketing initiatives and bringing it all together uh, to have a successful round. I I can take away from a lot of the work you've done and, and what I've seen come my way is that you also are. I mean, you, you employ some of the best practices of digital marketing in engaging those investors, which is something that I'm a huge advocate for, is helping that narrative spread or helping people see the narrative through, you know, what, what just a traditional product company would do very well using that with investors as well. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a job well done for sure. Well, thank you. We certainly try to do things a little bit differently. Um, I've done things like different, yeah, like uh, I did a, a large Q&A, for example, to all of our shareholders last November uh, for TGOD. Um, we're always putting on events. We're always trying to kind of do things. We're trying to do things the way that we would want to be treated as shareholders. And I never like putting other companies down, so I'm not going to. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of companies out there that could be doing a lot more to treat shareholders better. And that's just kind of what what we're trying to do. So we, we're always focused on transparency. We always want to keep everybody updated. Um, and at the end of the day, if people are making money and buying our products at the end of the day as, as brands, brand ambassadors and supporters, that's 
you know, that that's that's our main goal. We want to make people money and and treat investors respectfully. I got treat you. people the way that we want it to be treated. So anyway, that's that's kind of the the theory that we employ. Yeah, I, I appreciate it, and I uh, I think it's it's advice that needs to be heeded by those who are in the IR world or in uh, leading public companies because it's it's all too often that it seems that the shareholders get neglected. I, I want to step back into uh, to the way you structured up TGOD when you did it with the uh, the memorandum, and was it only that round, the buck sixty five round, that you did uh, a ten thousand dollar cap? Or did you do it in the previous rounds? Yeah, sure. So I'll run you through our, our strategy there. So each separate round had different terms associated with it. Um, when we started in November of 2016, we went out with a goal of raising $10 million. Uh, we wanted to, uh, we, we did $10 million and we had a, a $10,000 cap on what people can invest. Um, not only did we have a $10,000 cap, but we also had a six month hold post IPO. And at the time, we're marketing an IPO that was about 12 months away. Now, if you think about that, that's a year and a half hold, hmm. a maximum investment of $10,000, and no warrant associated with that. And sorry, that was a what price? That was our 50-cent round. Oh, so, wow. And this was, yeah. this was the first time that we really went out with, with those kind of terms, those kind of harsh terms. Well, I wouldn't say harsh, but it aligns the terms more with the company. So what that did... Uh, a, people thought we were crazy and said that we would fail left, right, and center. Uh, we ended up having a lineup of shareholders down the street. We closed on $13 million with 1,300 investors. And all of those guys were the ones that made the most money on, on TGOD. So, so, so yeah, I mean, they, made out, they would have made out huge. Uh, the question, yeah. I, what was that dialogue like in, inside? I mean, you must have been sitting with uh, your team, but then you've also got uh, some of the check writers, traditional check writers, you, you know, who'd write large checks in your portfolio there. What was that dialogue like as a team to, to finally lock in on that strategy? Well, we just we we basically tested that strategy with with Emblem, but we we took it a whole step further with TGOD, um, and it all came down to capping the amount that people can invest because we wanted to avoid one of the biggest problems that people have in the industry when they're raising capital, and that is I guess there's a few problems, but the one that we really wanted to avoid is we didn't want to have any one particular shareholder having too much of a control uh, in our company. And we've found this before. When you have different hedge funds out there that have mandates when they're public, when if you're a public company and you've got call it 50% institutional ownership, and you've got a couple of funds that, by no fault of the companies, have to liquidate a percent. Perhaps cannabis gets too large of a percent of their holdings, and they have to go and liquidate 20% of their holdings to drop it under that sort of threshold. You are going to be hit hard from that. And mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur building a company building a business from the ground up. And that's what we really are as we're entrepreneurs building these companies. We wanted to make sure that we're, we're, we're eliminating all of the problems and all of the excuses before they happen. So for us going out to raise capital, we wanted to make sure that no one group, no one large shareholder had that ability to affect us in the markets, which would then limit our ability to raise future capital. We are in a diluted market. Perhaps things take us turn south for the overall markets. Um, all these things kind of play a factor. And when you're building a company and thinking about this, your capital structure is the number one closest thing that you need to hold close to your heart, because that is the only way that you can raise money in the future. And by doing it in certain non-dilutive ways or less dilutive ways, could it be the make or break difference of a company's success? So 
I absolutely on the, on the, the capital structure piece there. It's, um, man, you could do a whole ca- or a whole podcast just on, uh, and not one episode, but a whole podcast just on capital structures and, and what to do and what not to do. But I think that's for another time. Um, when yeah, fair enough. Um, so, so hopefully that answers the question though. Well, yeah, um, we, it's, we, we tried to do things, uh, just a, a very different way, um, for, for them. I mean, some, that's some of the main reasons there, but, uh, yeah, we tried to do things a unique way. And, um, again, it's a lot more work. We could just take a few checks from a few large institutional investors, but that it just, it just doesn't provide any value other than a blank check. And, you know, we're, we're trying to do more than, more than that. And, and, you know, work with more people. I hear you. Some listeners may say, well, these guys are playing a very hot hand in a, in a, in a hot industry. And it's easy to get institutional uh, investment to step in. And um, what would you say to those who are looking to either raise money or increase their, their exposure, their share price, when they're at that, really that trying to cross that chasm from retail to institutional ownership. I mean, I understand the strategy you have of limiting, effectively limiting the amount of, uh, of institutionals. How about for those who are looking to start taking on institutional checks? How should the CEOs um, approach them? I, I just want to say one more thing here. That, that Part of the reason that we put those strict terms on the financing is specifically for that reason. We didn't want to have people just investing uh, a in our track record or B in a hot market. We wanted investors to realize what we were doing exactly. So they know exactly what they're investing into. They understand the business uh, and they understand what we're working towards. So in, in doing that with those terms, that's, that's exactly the goal we accomplished. So everybody that we, we, ha- we allowed into our company had to review the business plan. They had to talk to us. They had to understand our vision. Um, anyway, I think that's just important to note. Mm. But for investors looking to add more institutional uh, coverage to the story. Sorry, I mean, companies looking at to, to add more institutional coverage. Yeah. Sorry. So c- can you repeat the, the, the question as far as, so you're looking to, for, for, well, for companies looking to add more institutional investors, how do you do that? Yeah, it seems, I mean, you guys have taken a really interesting approach of going retail first and building a awesome audience there. But then you've got companies who haven't taken that approach, but they do want to step up to a world where they can start to entice institutions to take, you know, take part of take part in their company, whether it be a financing or just buy the stock on the open market. What what advice do you have there for for engaging and, and trying to move up market beyond retail? Great question, and this is one of the most important things in a company's life cycle. So. And I'll, I always like to bring it back to examples. So TGOD, I mean, your early stage investors are always going to be uh, those retail supporters. They're going to be the speculative investors that invest for that speculative valuation bump. Now, as the company matures and grows and you start to execute on that business plan and you show the investment community that you're capable of executing on that business plan, what you do is you start generating more revenue and you start to transition those earlier speculative stage retail investors out of the story and you start to bring in more cash flow oriented institutional investors. So it depends on the right timing for the business. But I would suggest that people or companies looking to add that institutional following, um, it's got to be at the right time. And that right time is sort of the inflection point where your risk is, is, is reduced. A lot of the dollars are raised to go into the ground. And in TGOD's case, the facilities are completely funded at this point. And now it's part of the company's goal to start bringing in those institutional investors 
And the fact is, is with these facilities coming online that TGOT's got, um, it's the perfect timing because you have a market cap that's depressed because it's the middle of summer. You've got all of the dollars going into the facility right now, no need for additional capital, and you've got these facilities nearing completion. So the amount of revenue expected from these facilities to come online is a perfect example of the right timing to start approaching that institutional market. Um, there's a number of ways to do it. My favorite is always just through a standard institutional roadshow, getting to know them, getting to talk to them. Um, and it's going to be the brokerage firms, generally speaking, that set that up. Uh, mm-hmm. The best time is, of course, when you have something to sell. So if you're going to be doing a financing or an offering of some sort, you need to be getting in front of larger institutions, um, especially if the if the timing makes sense from the company's perspective. Right. Now, you know what? Let's, let's bring it over to talking about brokers and the brokerage industry in Canada and uh, to some extent the U.S., but you were previously a broker with Canaccord and with a, a firm before that. What yeah. should CEOs know about brokers, bankers, and, and well, institutional investors? Well, and I know that's a broad I, question, but there's got to be some advice in there because brokers come at it from a very interesting, interesting point. Yeah, fair enough. Um, let me see here. So I think the, I think I always get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's nice. true. But brokers and brokers firms are two things. They're lazy and they're greedy. They want to do the least amount of work for the most amount of money. So as an entrepreneur going out to finance your business, you have to be cognizant of people that really want to help you versus people that want to make money off of you. So again, for us, we always control our own financing. We only let the brokerage brokerage firms in for 10 to 20% of any offering. We do the rest ourselves. So for, I think, I mean, one of the obvious benefits of using a brokerage firm is the fact that you get research coverage and you can have help putting institutional roadshows together, other roadshows together. So I think one of the things that I would suggest is by by keeping by knowing that is sort of the ultimate mo. Which you know I'm not shedding any light on any groundbreaking issues here. It's it's just how the business operates. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tailor your approach to effectively reduce your own risk as an entrepreneur uh, when you're financing. So that strategy has paid. Dividends for us, um, we've been able to control our own destiny by controlling our own shareholder. And at the end of the day, that is, I think, some of the most important advice or important um, kind of things you can take into consideration when you're, when you're looking to raise money. You know, you make a good point. A broker's first and foremost duty there is to see a return for their clients, but they've also got a lot of restrictions on what they can and can't do with the know your client and the regulations and so on that it's 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 hard to count on them as a as a partner who's going to be with you through thick and thin. Exactly, and and just to bring it back to that, that's that's sort of the reason we we have. I mean, for us, we have a group of top quality guys that we trust that have been with us from day one. You know, we've worked with our core group of five to ten brokers for years, so we know what they're like. We know what their investment uh, theories are like because um, we've worked with them for so long. So for for us going out to raise money, we want to make sure that. Again, it all comes down to reducing your risk and eliminating problems before they rise. So it, it, a lot of that comes down to the way you raise money. Um, and by working with a key group of brokers that you've come to know and trust over the years, I think is hugely valuable, especially, as you say, the KYC rules, the industry matures, um, all these things come into consideration for 
basically creating a strong foundation for, for the company with the right shareholders. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's really insightful. How much, how much work do you do with uh, U.S. brokers or U.S. Uh, we've, um, so, so for Hemfusion, we weren't even allowed to have any U.S. investors come into the round. Um, so so with, with that one, we weren't able to do any. With TGOD, um, we've done different things like U.S. roadshows, um, U.S. family office meetings, different conferences and events down there. Um, but at the end of the day, the U.S. is the largest financial market out there. So we want to make sure that we're always tailoring still to that market. And when we go out to raise money, I mean, not being able to include U.S. shareholders was one of the most frustrating things for us um, because all of our products are sold in the States. So we're trying to apply that same theory that we used with TGOT and Emblem, um, but we couldn't with this last hemp fusion round, which is very frustrating. But um, at the same time, going forward, we hope that that can change for our IPO, which is upcoming. Um, but we, we do need to focus a lot on the U.S. shareholders because it's, uh, it's obviously the largest market in the world. Absolutely. Do you, how do you, or do you have to change your approach when working with the, the American investment community? And not from a regulation side, but more from a, even a relationship management or a, you know, or a pitching a deal side. Do they, how do they work compared to you know, the, the small little street we know as Bay Street and uh, Howe Street? Yeah. Um, to be honest, it's all, all the same theories apply. Uh, investors just want to know that they're investing their money with the right teams and the right teams uh, that put forward the right capital structures that allow for success. Um, it, 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 to me, it's all, it's all a very similar approach. Um, it just, yeah, it, it's a very similar approach. I think investors basically want the same thing from, from both countries. Uh, they just want to make money. And that's, um, you know, we've been able to do that for a lot of our U.S. guys. And they've, they've followed us from deal to deal because of that. So we just need to keep making that happen and keep, keep being an inclusive company, not excluding anybody. I gotcha. Now, this is a question I've asked of a few guests who have, um, you know, well, they've built a number of incredible companies and, well, very credible, but uh, uh, awesome, perhaps is a better word. The question is, is do you have a formula for, for tactfully taking profits? Because I mean, you're part of the you're part of the team there, but you also want to take some money off the table. How do you do that? Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, you you have to take profits. It kind of one of my favorite things is you don't go broke taking profits. So, I I would say to do it tactfully. Uh, there's a number of things you can do. So first of all, the way the markets typically trade is it's a very seasonal market, especially with cannabis. What you'll find is Come April, May, you take a decline of about 30 to 50%. And then you hit your lows in usually August. Uh, and then from there, I'd say 80% of a company's return is based off of that market cycle between the months of uh, September and April. So if you're going to be selling and you need to take some money off the table, my suggestion would be to A, focus on what time of the year it is, because I think you can make substantially more dollars if you are taking profit at the right time. Um, the right time to be selling is likely between the months of uh, October, November. Tax loss season comes in December, which is always a depressed month. And then markets rally again from January, February, March, all the way through usually till April. And then you get that sell in May and go away phenomenon for the summer. So my suggestion would be to sell when when stocks are depressed and, and buy when, um, sorry, sell when stocks are, are, are 
hitting their high of seasonality being April and November, uh, and then buy back in August and December when they're at their lows. Um, other than that, and I how think, about how about when you have I think, such close relationships to the company, and even on an insider side? Oh, that's a whole different story. I mean, at the end of the day, um, I mean, obviously, we you build a company to to make money, so it's 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 always you know it's, it's a tough, tough for question. insiders to sell. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's tough for insiders to sell. At the end of the day, the whole reason, and and it, their insiders are. You know, people they're 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 at this to make money as well. Um, they have to certainly take some off the table from time to time. What investors have to focus on for an insider selling is the percentage that they're selling and the timing of it. So if they're going out and they're selling fifty percent of their holdings, that's obviously not a very bullish sign for the future of the company. But if they have ten million shares and they sell several hundred thousand because they need to you know put a down payment on a house um, or something like that. You know that's completely acceptable. So it, it's all relative to the percentage um, and the timing of it is would be my answer. And and investors just have to keep in mind that um, the, the entire game uh, of of investing in the stock market is for for everybody to make money, right? So at the end of the day, insiders have to make money as well. And as long as they're not selling a significant portion of their holdings, I think that's totally acceptable. Nope. Given the uh, the success of your team and and uh, I mean the hand that you've you've been playing has been amazing. Uh, you must be getting a lot of deal flow. You you probably get a lot of companies yeah. coming up and saying, "Hey, look at me, look at me." What are you looking at there? Are you actively looking at deals? And if so, how should uh, companies absolutely. be approaching you? Yeah, so I'll I'll chat on this for a couple of minutes, but um, I mean this was the reason that we started Tigot Acquisitions. So I'm I'm now CEO of Tigot Acquisitions. And the whole purpose of this company was for us to take advantage and leverage some of our non-core deals that we were identifying in TGOD, um, and then invest in them and, and, and basically bring those companies along um, to potential IPOs in the future. And what we found is that we spent years doing due diligence on different companies. We spent years building our database of private companies, um, and we spent years building this intrinsic value that we were we were kind of tired of just giving it away to other people. So we thought, why don't we try and build something here ourselves? Uh, and that's why we started the the whole idea with TGOD Acquisitions Corp. So we did a spinoff. We gave TGOD shareholders the first right to buy in alongside management. Um, and that company is going to go out and make certain acquisitions or, or investments into other companies to try and take advantage of that intrinsic knowledge um, and that intrinsic uh, database that we built over the years. So that's, that's sort of my first comment. My second comment is there's a number of other people in our network and our group, part of the Rad Capital team, um, where we're able to identify. And, and again, it becomes part of, I mean, part of the, the way we found Hamfusion is we looked at over 385 companies uh, just to identify Hamfusion as our next, the next company that we were going to support and, and back and, and help grow. So, it, we're very selective in, in our approach. We want to make a, a very methodical approach to, to making this happen. Um, so at the end of the day, it's got to have the right criteria for us to get involved. They've got to have the right management team. Um, and it's got, to make, it's got to make sense that you know we, we can come in and we can really help that company and, and scale it and take it to the next level. So between TGOT Acquisitions, uh, Rad Capital, um, and the whole team that we're part of, um, we're always looking for deal flow, and 
I think at the end of the day, we just want to find more companies that have that ability to, to have, have the ability to scale and grow within the right market and the right timing. So for us right now, we've got a, a, a the majority of our time is focused directly on the U.S. hemp-based CBD market. Um, but perhaps going forward, that might shift to another market like the European CBD market, um, where we haven't really seen too much evolve over there yet. But can we, um, can anyway, we yeah, jump into welcome. that? Yeah, I, def- I definitely want to hear, because I know from our, our earlier conversation that that's where you're setting your sights, especially with hemp fusion. But with regard to TGOT acquisitions, which, uh, which sounds really interesting, how are you identifying opportunities or when, when a company approaches you, what kind of things are yeah. you looking for? Great I mean, question. you're really taking and, a, a VC uh, approach here now, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, 380 plus companies we looked at just to identify hemp fusion. For Emblem in the early days, I had a database of 16,000 companies that we're looking for. So we're always interviewing companies. We're always talking to companies. We've got a whole in-house team for corporate development just to review incoming deal flow. Um, but basically, I think the, the most important message here is and what we're looking for is you need to you need to have a company that, I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy, but you need to have a company that, that knows its own vision. Um, you got to have CEOs that know their numbers inside out. Um, they got to know things, basic things like their, their valuation, how they got to their valuation, uh, their differentiating factors. That's a big one. And, mm. and when you're getting to a market that's so saturated, especially in Canada now, you need that differentiated side. Um, Emblem had its pharmaceutical angle. TGOD had its organic angle. Plus products was differentiated through its product line. So you always need that new kind of innovative angle that's going to excite investors. I think Canada is relatively, you know, we're going to get in trouble for saying it, but Canada is kind of done now. You've got 150 plus licenses. You've got a market that's uh, got sales that aren't meeting targets kind of all over the place. Um, I think the medical market is unfolding quite rapidly in California. And I think timing is lined up perfectly for the U.S. CBD market. Um, so companies that have that differentiated factor with the right market timing is important. Um, and they got to have blue sky. They got to have that ultimate five-year goal of, of how they're going to kind of change the world, if you will. Um, and, and be excited about it. Um, the CEO and CFO have to work hand in hand throughout the whole thing, coordinated efforts, all of that. Um, and then one of the last things I can think of here is a lot of times companies, management teams get tunnel vision. So they're so focused on what they're doing that they don't have the slightest idea what their competitors are doing. Um, and a company that knows what their competitors are doing, I think is hugely valuable because they know how to stand out and they know how to get ahead. Um, so stuff like that. That's, that's kind of a hmm. quick little nutshell of what we look for. Yeah. Yeah. I'm nodding my head as, uh, as you walk us through that because it's, um, you know, some, from some great investors I've heard similar things. And it's always nice to hear it again. It needs to be reiterated for those who are uh, listening. In regards to um, TGOT acquisition as well, what, what are the, what's kind of the bite size you're looking for? How much are you looking to invest? What kind of structure are you looking for pre-public or public? Who's of interest to you? So I think, I think we need to, um, I, I would say not just TGOT acquisitions, but our team in general. There's lots of different ways we can structure a deal. There's lots of different vehicles we can use. Uh, TGOT acquisitions will make likely between one and three investments. Shareholders will just get certificates in those companies, um, and then it'll just it, it's just going to uh, dissolve from there, right? You're just going to get shares in the, in the company that, that TGOT invests into. But our whole financial team and Rad Capital um, 
we're always looking for new opportunities. And the sweet spot for us is going to be, uh, it's going to have to have the right market timing. So for hemp fusion, again, perfect with the US CBD market. That's what we're looking for. Um, in the future, it could be European CBD companies that we're looking for. And it's going to be a company that's likely between the ranges of, call it 5 to 20 million valuation. That's where our real sweet spot is. That's where we can get involved, bring our network, bring our skill set, bring, bring our team uh, to really help take that company to the next level. And that's what, um, that's what our business plan really entails. We just want to help companies grow. And we've done it enough times now between Emblem, T-God, Plus Products, and Hemp Fusion. We really know not just how to finance a company, but how to, how to build a company as entrepreneurs from the ground up. And that's really what this whole business is. It's us supporting entrepreneurs. Let, let's jump into, well, back to a, a discussion we had and, and the future of cannabis. Where are you seeing that going? What's next? The future of cannabis. I love it. So <laughs> let me think here for a second. So, so basically for us, we, and I, I said this a little bit earlier in the show, but I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate it again because I think it's, a, it's very important. So for us, we identified the Canadian medical market in 2013 to 15. Uh, we then identified the Canadian recreational market for 2016, 17. Um, and I mean, that's when you need to build these companies to, 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 to be there when legalization came through last year. Um, you're not building it after legalization because it's too much of a saturated market at that point. Um, we then shifted our focus to Plus Products, which was, um, you know, when we got involved, it was the 43rd top edible brand in California. Um, with our, our, you know, everything we brought to the company and our capital, uh, like I said, 75 million over the past uh, two years, we've, we've helped them raise. They're now the number one best-selling edibles brand in California. Now they're taking that methodology of how they became that number one selling brand in California, taking it to the Nevada market, taking it across the States, uh, and then going international with it. So um, that, that was a big, big aspect being the U.S. edibles market. But like I said, now we're kind of seeing that shift towards the U.S. CBD market. Um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity there. We saw some of the biggest IPOs last year take place in the space like Charlotte's Web um, and CVSI trading as well as a, one of the one of the main competitors for Hemfusion. But um, that U.S. CBD market is, I think, the place to be right now. Uh, there's no doubt about that in my mind. That is the place to be right now. And that's what we're going to focus all of our efforts on uh, is making Hemfusion the most successful CBD company out there. And... Um, I feel like we've got the, the right timing to do it, which is important. We've got the right team to do it. Um, we've got the products in place. There's distribution over 3,400 stores right now. Uh, they've got 31 products, another 25 coming on board. Their product formulations expert is also their founder, Jason Mitchell. He was a naturopathic doctor who, before this, worked for Country Life Vitamins, uh, where he launched over 300 products before the company was sold to Kikuman in 2006. So absolute formulations expert. So the company's got everything that we look for to become successful. They just didn't have that capital. So to bring it back to your question of the future of cannabis, I'm including hemp in that because I think uh, it's important that they're related. They come from the same plant. And that is my focus now. That is our group's focus now. And then in the future, I might suggest that the European CBD market might be the next kind of domino to fall. And we're starting to see some pretty interesting companies built in Europe, um, lots of hemp companies. We saw that with, um, with Hemp Poland when, when, we're, when we were part of T-God. Um, that was one of the most successful hemp-based companies in Europe at the time, and T-God bought, bought them. So we're just 
I would suggest that uh, right now the place to be is the U.S. CBD market. Um, I think we're we're going to be having a tremendous market cycle there for the next several years, um, and then after that, I think the next domino to fall is going to be the European CBD market. After that, gotcha. Interesting. I mean, what a what an inside scoop you have, and you know, getting in more of the particulars there, as you make mention of the founder and CEO of of Hemp Fusion. What uh, that sounds like a really a really nice resume to have. It that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Danny, I want to I want to be respectful of your time, and um, I will say your your enthusiasm is fantastic. With all the experience you've had, and when you think about cannabis entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in any industry, what what are some final thoughts you'd have for them when building their companies? You know, in relation to financing, so they do things right because when you finance wrong, you can crater your company, and it's uh, nobody wants to be there. Yeah, big time. I mean, financing the company, it's the only time that you get to control your, your capital structure. Uh, to us, that is your make or break moment for any entrepreneur. Uh, if you finance with the wrong people, if you finance at the wrong valuation, or you finance at the wrong time, uh, all three of those can lead to a failed business. And it's scary to say because people think as entrepreneurs, when you go out uh, to build a company, they have no idea the effects that the capital markets and how you raise money can affect the underlying business. It's not until you've made some of those mistakes that you really start to see the importance of it. So I think that that's the number one most important thing there. Um, for sorry, I shouldn't say that's the number one most important thing. Because mo- number one most important thing is you have to have a defensible business um, that's got unique products um, and and a unique angle with differentiating factors. So pharmaceutical uh, for Emblem was a huge huge win for us. Um, T got having that organic side with it, with combined with the scale of it. Um, all these things lead to a differentiated product line or, or, or a unique kind of selling angle. So I would say that entrepreneurs need to identify that interesting or unique angle of the company. And it may not be hidden in there. Like you, you, you might have several of these things, but try to find a focal point and make that your, your big differentiating factor. Uh, combine that with a team that is proven, uh, a team that's done it before, perhaps somebody that has several acquisitions under their belt. Um, and 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 a proven ability to execute. So start combining those things together with share structure, differentiated products, management team, proven ability to execute. Um, it's it's a winning recipe for success. Um, it, it, you, you have to have market timing as well. Um, I think that's one of the most important things. Like I wouldn't be starting a, a, a cannabis company in Canada right now. That's for sure. So market timing combined with all those things, I think, is the most important message uh, any entrepreneur could be. Uh, thinking about for for themselves when they're looking to start a business. So hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> well, if it doesn't for them, they can listen uh, a few more times. But it certainly makes sense to me. Uh, Danny, thanks so much for taking the time. How uh, how can listeners follow the work you're doing? Where should they Where should they look you up? Uh, basically, um, just following the, the the trends with Hemp Fusion, I'd suggest they visit our website hempfusion.com. Um, subscribe to our email list. We keep everybody up to date on on our projects. Uh, feel free to email me. Um, I'm happy to have anybody email me. I'm always available. Dbrody at rad with two d's capital dot com. Um, happy to yeah. I'm always happy to talk to people. Um, happy to help anywhere I can. And that's kind of what it's what it's all about. I think. Um, so follow along, and uh, we're trying to make it a pretty incredible journey. Yeah, there's no doubt you're doing it. So uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet, Corey. I appreciate it. Uh, appreciate it all very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.